Strong Interactions, a podcast about exploring a new frontier in nuclear physics at the upcoming Electron-Ion Collider by Markus Diefenthaler and Maria Zurich. Stories straight from the heart of matter. Welcome to Strong Interactions. In our very first episode of Stories Straight from the Heart of Matter, we will be diving right inside the protons. We will be learning about the internal structure of these basic and yet complex building blocks of matter with our guest, Dr. Robert Jeffy from MIT. Bob Jeffy is Otto and Jane Morningstar Professor of Science at MIT from 1998 um, to 2004. He was director of the MIT Center for Theoretical Physics. He is best known to the EIC community for his research on the quark substructure of matter and his excellent lectures on the subject. 2018, he published with his colleague Washington Taylor, The Physics of Energy, a comprehensive and unified introduction to the science of energy sources, uses, and systems. Welcome, Bob, and thank you very much for accepting our invitation. Thank you, my pleasure. Since today we are peeking inside the proton, I think we should start from the question, how do we actually know that the proton has an internal structure? And could you tell us how this picture of the interior of the proton was evolving over time? So this is a particularly appropriate moment in time to be talking about the inner structure of the proton because it looks like the EIC will begin taking data nearly 100 years after the discovery that the proton is a non-trivial system. This came in 1933 when Otto Stern and collaborators first measured the magnetic moment of the proton. And as you know, all elementary particles with spin, uh, like the electron, for example, have uh, intrinsic magnetic moment and for uh, particles which are structuralists, their magnetic moment uh, takes a value in some units, which is two. And in the uh, case of the proton, Stern found that the magnetic moment of the proton departs from that value by a factor of three. And uh, this was an indication that the proton was more complex than a simple system like the electron. For a long time after that, uh, until the late 1940s, uh, physicists had little understanding at all of what interactions might make the structure of the proton more complicated. In the 1940s, uh, the pion was discovered, and the first models were built of interactions of nucleons with each other by the exchange of pi mesons. And those pictures. Uh, started to give a description of protons and neutrons as related to each other and related to pions, and all of them being non-trivial because their interactions with one another were uh, found to be strong. That situation looked simple to begin with when the pion was the only other strongly interacting particle known, but in the subsequent years, in the 1950s, uh, all hell broke loose. And one after another, complicated, uh, excited states of protons and neutrons, new particles called hyperons, lambdas and sigmas, 
uh, were discovered. And this zoo of particles got sufficiently complex that the idea of something being fundamental uh, basically broke down. And at that time, a rather bizarre idea that these particles were all, none of them fundamental, and they were all made up of each other, which was called the hadronic bootstrap, uh, was a popular idea in particle physics. And really, when I entered particle physics or entered physics in the early 1960s, uh, one could say that almost nothing was known about the internal structure of the proton. It was a blob. Uh, there had been some experiments at Stanford carried out by Robert Hofstadter and collaborators where they scattered electrons elastically off protons. And they found that the electrons uh, scattered uh, with more energy transfer to the protons than expected. The um, scattering probabilities were smaller because the proton was more likely to be excited. And this gave the idea that somehow the proton was the distribution of charge, which is what the electrons see, or magnetism, which is another aspect of the electrons scattering off the protons. These distributions uh, were somehow smeared out in the proton. So the proton and its uh, close relation, the neutron, were thought of as being uh, blobs of distributed charge and magnetism. But the idea that they were uh, in some sense composite was completely unknown. And in, in 1964, uh, the first real revolution took place in our understanding of these particles when Murray Gelman uh, and George Swig proposed that the proton, the neutron, and its uh, friends that they interact with were all made of simpler particles, the quarks, with uh, fractional electric charges with spin a half um, and with little more known about them than that they were the subconstituents of protons and neutrons. Uh, that picture developed slowly for a few years until experiments at Stanford where electrons were scattered inelastically off protons and neutrons much the way Rutherford at the turn of the 20th century uh, learned about the structure of the atom by scattering alpha particles off the atom. These experiments at Stanford showed that the electrons recoiled uh, as if they were scattering off of some point-like charges inside the protons and neutrons. And eventually these experiments were uh, understood uh, as evidence for point-like subconstituents of protons and neutrons that had fractional charges. And these were the first direct evidence of quarks. There was a hint at things to come in those experiments because when uh, it was possible from those experiments to measure the fraction of the momentum carried by quarks in a rapidly moving proton or neutron, and that fraction turned out to be only about a half. So even in those early experiments, there was evidence that there was something else going on inside protons and neutrons that accounted for at least half of their momentum. 
theorists got busy with paper and pencil scribbling models that might describe that kind of physics. And they came up with pictures of protons and neutrons bound by uh, particles that carried no charge and no weak interactions, but only their only purpose was to glue protons and neutrons together. These things were called gluons. They had uh, very little was known about them, whether they were spin zero or spin one, whether they had something to do with the symmetries of protons and neutrons. And uh, over the course of the next uh, half dozen years leading up to 1972, 1973, slowly the picture evolved that these gluons might interact with protons uh, in a way analogous to electromagnetism, but based on a different set of charges which uh, for reasons that were uh, mostly associated with the easiness of discussing them in public conversations, they became called color. And these charges are called color charges. There are eight of them. Uh, the quarks come in three types and the gluons come in eight types corresponding to each of the color charges. And this picture uh, turned out to be a very fertile picture of the understand, understanding the substructure of protons and neutrons. Uh, nevertheless, much of the community um, uh, made a lot of progress in understanding protons and neutrons and their interactions with one another and their excited states uh, to, to the extent they could be probed. Um, and even the discovery of the heavy charmed quark uh, and the states made of charmed quarks and the other three up, down, and strange quarks, which are the light quarks that have to do with the structure of the protons and neutrons primarily. Um, a lot of progress was made basically ignoring anything except the fact that these quarks were bound together by some as yet unclearly un described uh, force that didn't have to be specified in too much detail. This picture was known as the, the quark model, the non-relativistic quark model. And it, uh, it had a lot of successes. Um, and that picture kind of um, became a comfortable place for theorists and experimentalists to think about the structure of protons and neutrons. Uh, there were some dark clouds in the horizon because although the protons, the quarks were treated non-relativistically, um, as if they were slowly moving. Uh, evidence seemed to be accumulating that the masses of, pro of the quarks were tiny compared to the masses of protons and neutrons, so that they should actually be moving relativistically inside protons. Um, there was really a second revolution in the works here, starting with some experiments carried out at Stanford by Vernon Hughes of Yale and his collaborators and then extended in an elegant series of experiments by the EMC uh, and COMPASS collaborations at CERN, by the Hermes group at DAISY, uh, by the Jefferson Lab experiments and further experiments at Stanford, where attempts were made to measure um, the uh, spin dependence of the scattering of electrons or equivalently of muons, which are basically heavy electrons, uh, off of protons and neutrons. 
Um, I got involved in this in 1973 because uh, sitting around on a quiet Saturday afternoon at Slack as a last year graduate student, I and another young postdoc named Jack, John Ellis uh, were playing around with the uh, possibility that one could explain some general features of the scattering of electrons off of polarized protons. And we derived a sum rule that uh, in its present interpretation uh, uses the scattering of polarized electrons from polarized protons or neutrons as a way of uh, measuring the total fraction of the spin of protons and neutrons uh, that are carried by quarks. And much to the surprise of everybody in the community, this fraction turned out to be very small. So not only uh, is 50% of the momentum of protons and neutrons carried by something other than quarks, but uh, a large fraction now believed to be about 70 or 75% of the angular momentum, the spin uh, inside protons and neutrons is carried by something other than quarks. Uh, spin is a wonderful probe in this case because unlike mass and momentum, in quantum mechanics, spin is a uh, entangled variable. The mass of a state can be viewed as the sum of the masses of its constituents added up incoherently, just a sum of numbers, and as can the momentum. But the uh, spin is an inherently quantum mechanical concept. And when you have a bunch of particles like quarks that have their own spin, spins, and they're coupled together uh, to make the spin of the proton, uh, it's the delicacy of the quantum mechanical wave function, the entanglement of these particles with one another that determines the way in which the spin of the proton uh, is formed from the spin of its subconstituents. So you've told us how over the years, our understanding of how the proton looks inside changed with data from electron and muon scattering experiments. And can you tell us a bit about how we describe the proton structure? One of the lessons that came out of scattering electrons uh, inelastically, that means you look at the electron and see what happens to it, but you don't care about the rest from protons and neutrons uh, was a slow evolution in the way we think of the substructure of protons and neutrons. Uh, for a non-relativistic system like an atom, which you study as an undergraduate in quantum mechanics, the Schrodinger wave function of the electrons in an atom really tells you all you wanna know about the electron substructure of an atom. And the, electron, the charged electrons have a distribution of charge and magnetism inside an atom. And you can measure that by scattering uh, something with charge like another electron off of the atom and measuring the probability of scattering, which is described in terms of a thing called the form factor. And this form factor contains in it the non-relativistic information about the charge or the momentum or the magnetization distribution in a proton, in a, uh, in an atom. And it turns out that this picture breaks down in the presence of relativity. When you have the probability of creating new particles out of energy, which is allowed in relativity, or having a particle recoil with a momentum that's comparable to its rest mass, then the Schrodinger picture of the bound state fails. And 
uh, despite our best efforts for 100 years or almost 100 years, it's been impossible to come up with a, a satisfactory description of a relativistic bound state in the same manner as the Schrodinger equation gives us a description of a non-relativistic bound state. Although we can measure the form factors of the proton and neutron by scattering electrons non-relativistically off them, those form factors give us relatively little information of what's going on inside a proton or a neutron. All we can say from the, from the form factors is that yes, they're composite, uh, and yes, the charge and magnetization are distributed in some as yet unknown way through these structured particles. When the deep inelastic scattering uh, tool developed, uh, a new method of probing proton and neutron substructure developed along with it. These experiments that were initially interpreted in terms of parton distributions by Feynman and Bjorkane um, gave us a description of uh, that simplified in when protons and neutro or neutrons are viewed moving by at essentially uh, infinite momentum or very close to the speed of light. And there the motion of the quarks is essentially frozen uh, in time and the parton distribution within the proton and neutron, these things are now called parton distribution functions. They give us precise and quantifiable information about the distribution within the proton of the quarks, of the gluons, of their momentum, of their spin, of their transverse motion, and even their transverse position. And this, uh, really is as close as we have ever come to a potentially complete description of a composite relativistic system. So not only did we learn uh, about the quarks and gluons inside the proton during this process that followed upon the discovery of deep inelastic scattering, but we also developed the tools necessary to go forward and make that understanding richer and more precise. It is fascinating to hear how our understanding of the inner structure of the proton evolved over time. Thank you so much for summarizing 100 years of nuclear physics research in only 15 minutes. At the Electron-Ion Collider, we will study the inner structure of the proton at the scale of um, C quarks and gluons, and will deepen our understanding of the strong interaction. Next, we would like to talk about QCD, the theory of the strong interaction and its unique role. From your perspective as a theorist, what makes the proton a fascinating topic to study? Um, that's a wonderful question. Uh, I think we need to be reminded before getting into the strong interactions that the standard model, which is uh, one of the great constructions of 20th century physics and can be found written on the t-shirts of students walking through the infinite corridor at MIT. Uh, the standard model of weak and electromagnetic interactions that describes electromagnetism, it describes radioactive decay, it describes the production and decays of Ws and Zs and the Higgs particle. These, this standard model is only solved in perturbation theory. 
It starts as a description of freely propagating field uh, particles, electrons, let's say, or W particles. Um, and then it builds upon that order by order in perturbations in a small variable, the coupling constant. Um, and this power series in the coupling constant gives us essentially everything we know about the weak and electromagnetic interactions. Now, from the perspective of theoretical physics, although perturbation theory has been developed to a wonderful level of precision uh, over the years, I think theorists would say it's essentially trivial. Um, it's a soluble problem. Understanding how to solve problems in perturbation theory goes back to planetary motion in the 18th century, where it was classical perturbation theory. Um, in non-relativistic quantum mechanics, non-perturbative systems can be solved because we have the Schrodinger equation. So the, the motion of electrons in an atom, the bound states of electrons, those are solved by solving the Schrodinger equation, and that's non-perturbative. Um, it's a complete solution um, of the uh, zeroth order bound state of an electron in an atom. Uh, the thing that makes the interactions of the particles that are bound inside protons and neutrons fascinating to theorists, uh, one of the things, I'll come back to another in a minute, but one of the things that makes it fascinating is that perturbation theory doesn't work. Uh, this theory of quarks bound to, by gluons, which of course goes under the name of quantum chromodynamics or QCD, um, is a beautiful and elegant theory, a generalization of electromagnetism. It's based on an unbroken symmetry associated with these eight charges. Um, this is uh, so-called non-abelian gauge theory. The uh, conservation laws associated with these charges are unbroken by any interactions that we know of. There's no parameter in this theory. The coupling constant, which appears in the uh, Lagrangian that defines this theory, um, in fact, for reasons that are somewhat subtle, is not in fact a free parameter. By the time we get to the scale at which protons and neutrons are found at the order of distances of order of Fermi, a uh, femtometer, um, that coupling constant is uh, extremely strong and perturbation theory gives us no handle on this structure. So with quantum chromodynamics, we're confronted by uh, almost like a Chinese puzzle. You don't know begin how to, how to pull it apart. It's a complete, elegant, unbroken, a fundamental theory with no parameters and its important states like the vacuum itself or the proton or the pi meson. Uh, these are states that can only be understood by solving this theory in some non-perturbative domain. Um, the development of tools to do relativistic quantum mechanics without resorting to perturbation theory remains one of the great theoretical challenges of the 21st century. Um, that's one of the reasons why theorists continue to be interested in learning more and more about protons and neutrons. Uh, as I mentioned, the only really precise tool that we have to gain that information comes from parton distribution functions, 
which are measured at electron and muon uh, scattering experiments, of which, of course, the EIC is the next in line uh, for more information about these particles. Uh, I should say, um, one of the, the I, I said there was another reason I was going to come back to. Um, theoretical physicists are looking for a theory of everything, looking for a theory that uh, ties together the electric, electromagnetic, the weak, the strong interactions together with gravity. And the, the uh, holy grail of that theoretical search is a theory with no parameters where the interactions are all uh, given by fundamental symmetries and where the ground state uh, is some kind of non-perturbative system, the string theorists call it compactification, where the ground state of this theory is highly non-trivial, non-perturbative, and determines all of the structure of the equations of physics uh, from non-perturbative structures built over the ground state. So if that sounds familiar, it's because it's exactly the same situation as we've encountered with quantum chromodynamics. So understanding how to deal with the non-perturbative aspects of quantum chromodynamics in proton and neutron structure um, is a great testing ground for the devices and techniques that one will have to develop to deal with an emerging theory of, ev of everything, which is what we hope to find as the 21st century goes on. You have mentioned an emerging theory of everything in the 21st century. Something that's a big topic in 21st century science is the discussion of emergent phenomena. Anderson emphasizes in his famous article, More is Different, the hierarchical structure of nature. His colleagues Loveland and Pines see theories of things, each emerging from its parent and involving into its children as the energy scale is lowered. Both point out that a bound state does not have to have the same symmetry of the laws which govern it. Um, would you like to make a comment on the role of emergent phenomena in QCD? Well, uh, emergent phenomena are really popular, especially in uh, condensed matter physics and in complex dynamical systems. Um, and uh, these are systems where the uh, complexity of the interactions give rise to phenomena at larger distance scales that seem fundamentally different from the ingredients in the underlying theoretical equations, the underlying Lagrangian. And uh, quantum chromodynamics is the poster child for an emergent theory. The degrees of freedom that we see in nature, the proton, the neutron, all of the excited baryons, all of the mesons, all of the bound states of heavy quarks, um, none of these entities occur in the underlying Lagrangian. All of the phenomena that we see in QCD, confinement, which holds quarks and gluons together forever inside protons and neutrons, something I've thought about for my entire career. Um, the breaking of uh, scale symmetry, um, which gives protons and neutrons a mass, even if the quarks inside are treated as massless. The breaking of chiral symmetry, um, which gives rise to very light pions. All of these symmetry breaking phenomena 
and all of the particles that appear in the underlying in the in the actual world of observed particles are emergent phenomena that uh, grow in complex and non-perturbative ways out of the underlying uh, Lagrangian, which is formulated in terms of entirely different particles. Uh, there's an interesting historical point of view from this because in the 1950s, when uh, the idea of hadron substructure was uh, not very popular, and uh, Jeffrey Chu and his collaborators at Berkeley and throughout uh, the United States, Europe, and Asia were building theories in which uh, none of the hadrons, none of the strongly interacting particles was fundamental, and they were all made of, uh, up of each other. Uh, this led to a theory called, uh, a version of the theory called S-matrix theory, where the concept was that you could understand the underlying theory by simply observing the scattering of the physical particles off of one another. S-matrix S stands for scattering matrix. And so you'd scatter protons off neutrons, you'd scatter pions off protons, you'd scatter lambda particles off nuclei. And by categorizing and accumulating all this information, you would eventually arise at a complete understanding of the theory underlying protons and neutrons. And what we've learned is that that idea is dead wrong. That in fact, the, uh, you cannot formulate a theory of the strong interactions of the interactions of hadrons solely in terms of the hadronic degrees of freedom themselves. You need the underlying deeper level of quarks and gluons in order to have a fundamental theory of the interactions of strongly interacting particles. So emergence is a wonderful, uh, exciting term in the beginning of the 21st century. Uh, and QCD and the interactions of hadrons is a great example. And this indeed makes the proton a fascinating topic to study. Thank you, Bob, for this dive into the structure of matter. It was great to have you here. Well, thanks for the opportunity to talk with you. I look, I look forward to uh, listening to the uh, advanced episodes of your podcast. Thank you. This concludes the first episode of Strong Interactions. In episode two, we will discuss the spin structure of the nucleon in more details. Our guest will be Professor René Fatemi from the University of Kentucky.